I always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the wide stance, taking the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Now Ballesteros. With a putt that could win him the 113th British Open. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast, otherwise known as Moaning Drive. Before I introduce you to my good pal and co-host, I have to do a bit of selling. Uh, last week, last Thursday, to be precise, we launched issue three of McKellar magazine uh, with our beautiful, beautiful cover, an illustration of uh, Seve Ballesteros by the great Harold Riley. And we uh, revealed what was in the magazine, uh, all sorts of incredible stuff including a piece by uh, our special guest today, uh, which I won't reveal, but uh, not for another 30 or so seconds. Uh, anyway, lots and lots of stuff. Um, we had a fantastic response, so thank you to everybody who has already uh, purchased a copy. It will be on on the way to you within the next couple of weeks, as soon as we get it from the printer. Uh, it really is. We are really, really proud of it. Um, oh, and by the way, if you go to mckellarmagazine.com, you can get yourself, get your own copy. You can also buy a, a, a bunch of, uh, or choose from a selection of uh, McKellar merchandise, nice t-shirts and all sorts of bits and pieces. So uh, mckellarmagazine.com. Anyway, on to the show. My, uh, not my special guest, my good pal, Mr. John Huggin. How you doing, Huggy? I'm very well, Lawrence, down here in sunny Melbourne this week. I, God almighty, the, uh, the, it looked terrible, the fires, and, or the, at least the smoke. I mean, is it, was it as bad uh, on the ground? It was weird, yeah. I mean, the, the couple of days it was particularly bad, really irritating on the eyes, and there was ash, you know, kind of floating around, and the, there was this really weird light. Yes. Really eerie kind of atmosphere. It was uh, it was just odd the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, well, this isn't a political show, but I think uh, climate change is upon us. Uh, mm. Here, here in Northern California, we had uh, five days without power. The fires were burning, you know, thirty miles away, and there was all sorts of stuff. It was uh, it was awful. I mean, you know, <laughs> not especially awful for us, but awful for the poor people involved. But uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, Enough of that, I don't want to get into climate change. Uh, our special guest who I discovered today, Huggy, is the consulting architect for Kingston Heath, Mr. Mike Clayton. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Lars. Very good. Uh, what's, uh, what does a consulting architect do? <laughs> no, seriously. What is, I mean, uh, what do you do? Well, we the first thing is to make sure we stop them doing silly things. We don't do, as a matter of course, at Kingston Heath. Other clubs do, but Kingston Heath have been the best managed club aside from Royal Melbourne, probably with Victoria down here for the last 30 years. They've had a great committee. Who've, so, but we built them a 19th hole. We, uh, we put a couple of bunkers up the left side of the 17th because they had a boundary problem. In truth, they didn't make any difference, but it was good to be seen uh, by the neighbours to be doing something. We recut the bunkers on the 18th. We... Uh, softened some mounds on the second. We've added a whole bunch of back tees in a futile effort to keep up with the ball. Um, so, so you know, just 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 been general advisors to the committee for twenty years, really. It's uh, so quite a lot, then. I mean, you've you've done done quite a lot. I mean, are you with such a 
I mean, it's not like you know touching up the Mona Lisa, but almost at Kingston Heath. I mean, I mean that's a, quite a responsibility. Um, do you feel it sometimes? Yeah, we well the twelfth hole we changed a lot. We see a famous bunker in the middle of a fairway, and we move the tee back about eighty yards, and then move the bunker uh, thirty yards. So the carry went from two thirty to two sixty. It was, you know, and we did a great job of making it look exactly the way it used to look. So that hole went from uh, when Peter Fowler won the Open there in 1983. It was probably 490 yards. It's now about 600. Oh my god! Because we, because they've just added another back tee. So we've we've done a lot of work there, but you know, they've they've managed that course amazingly well since. A guy called Graham Grant took over as the superintendent there in 1982 and restored a lot of bunkers and cut a lot of trees down. And He he was the one who really started that place on the road to its seemingly permanent sort of place in the top 20 or 30 courses in the world, the, which um, is pretty good. Well, so, I, I mean, not off the, well, off the top of your head, it doesn't have to be exact, the yardage has gone up how, by how much in the last, you know, 10, 15 years or since you've been Well, in not... In 1932, which is obviously not answering your question, it was 6,830 yards. That so was phenomenally long, mm. you know, 90 years ago, 85 years ago. Uh, it's probably, it might be 7.4 now, 7.3 or 7.4. Because the courses here play shorter than that because the ball runs a long way. But since we've been there, we've probably put 300 yards onto it. Which is all in a you know in an effort to keep it relevant, really. Uh, do, do they have any land left? Are they just going to buy some? They're going to buy a couple of houses and put, I mean it's just ridiculous, isn't it? No, they will. No, they can't. Well, well, the first day's basically up against the clubhouse wall. Uh, there aren't. They're almost in the tournament. They play the fourth hole off the tenth tee. They don't play the tenth. They play the nineteenth instead. Uh, we've almost eked every yard out of it we can, I think. You know, the 17th tees up against the road, 13th tees up against the superintendent's house, 12th tees up. Yeah, yeah there's almost nowhere to go now. So I mean, you couldn't move green. You couldn't move greens back, but you never would. You would never touch the green. You'd move it back. But so it's all about moving tees back, really. So there's no more yardage. What's next? <laughs> well, Huggies pals in Scotland. And um, his con- <laughs> their contemporaries in New Jersey fixed the ball up, stopped the ball going so far. That's the yeah. only way to... Because, of course, every course is irrelevant, really, now, in terms of how far the best players hit the ball. I mean, we'll see. We saw it at the Australian last week. We, we'll see it at Royal Melbourne this week. Our you know, courses that used to play at a pretty good length are all you know, largely... You know, that's a bit of an exaggeration to say they're largely played with drives and wedges, but certainly drives and short irons so they can't there is no more room it's fine for Augusta to be buying up roads and houses and parts of other golf courses and it's fine for the old course it's an address to go out onto the new course and the Himalayas putting ground and the Eden course and out of bounds off the 70th tee so but not every place has that luxury so they're they're two of the three places that could do something about it Augusta is the only tournament in the world could just put a box of balls in the first tee and say, if you want to play, you're playing with these. 
you know, and the RNA and the USJ need to do something about it. They need to regulate it. I I, I picked up the wee man from a, a, a tournament today. Uh, he, he, he did well. It was six thousand five hundred yards, uh, Huggy. Some kid, fourteen year old kid, went out and shot sixty nine. Mm. Yeah, I mean that, that six thousand five hundred is about the length of um, Dunbar, where I grew up playing um that was about i think it was just about exactly six and a half thousand yards when i was a kid so and that was a good test then but it's uh, it'll be pitching pot these days i'm afraid I, I, and i said to him you know so i mean he did pretty well he shot 73 or something and i said to him you know, what does a kid do he just said he didn't have anything more than an eight iron into any green you know it was eight, I mean, these are 14 year old kids yeah, well, that was the same with, I mean, Mike caddied for Elvis Smiley in the Australian Open last week, and what sort of clubs was was he heading into all the greens, Mike? I remember you rattled them off to me, and I think Seven Iron was the longest, and it was for a par five. Well, the eighth was a long hole into the wind. He had threes and four irons in there, but right. every other hole was a seven, seven iron or less. I mean, there were lots of wedges. I mean, you know, yeah, the wedge into... Three, not, not the building, well, necessarily another course, but three, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen is a driver, five, one, par five, wedge into sixteen, and wedge into eight in the par five. So, so it's mostly wedges. And that was the most feared, difficult course in the country 30 years ago. Here we'll get, we'll get. So it's, yeah. and, and he's a, you know, don't give me the better athlete deal. I and mean, anyone who's seen Elvis Smiley, not that many people have, is a beanstalk. I mean, you can't weigh... Well, his waist can't be more than 28. And he's, he can't weigh more than eight, eight or nine stone. Six foot three, probably six foot two. So it's not like he's anywhere near what he's going to finish up looking like. Yeah, long levers. Trick- I was going to yeah, say, lo- yeah. long levers. Yeah, and he smashes it. I mean, he, you know, he bombs it out there. Here, I, just I was going to ask you to get to that, Clates, but we'll just uh, the Aussie Open. Uh, watched a fair chunk of it on the uh, old Golf Channel, won by uh, Matt, Matt Jones, Matty Jones. By he, he uh, had to get up and down on the last. Uh, good story. I heard it on the Aussie Open podcast, but the broadcast uh, and the, those, that's just a great production. So well done. You were on it as well, Huggy. You were on course. Were you out in the course? Yeah. What were you doing? Well, I did the last five holes with um, Louis Oosthuizen, and Paul Casey, and is it Jamie Arnold? He was a third member. Yeah. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And, and how was yeah, how was that, that experience? It was, well, it was a new experience for me, and uh, definitely uh, something I'd like to try again because I got the feeling that the, the guys back in the booth, or Mike was actually one of them, and he could probably confirm or deny this, but I got the feeling that um, I wasn't really saying enough for these guys. I mean, the, the <laughs> The professional broadcaster types do tend to go on a bit, which is probably just as bad at the other end of the scale. But um, I did feel like I wasn't giving them enough information, though I did give them a laugh, apparently, when I I think it was Casey missed a putt, and I said, oh, I can still see the ball, which is never a good sign. That seemed to, <laughs> that seemed to amuse them somewhat. But that's that's something that I say in Scotland all the time. So, But um, anyway, as I say, five holes, that was all I did. Um it's very different. I've got a new appreciation, or you know, for what these guys do on TV. It's not as easy as it looks. The uh, so tell me how yeah. how close did you get to uh, Oosthuizen and how did it sound that close? 
the, fl- the what, flushing. The second shot. Well, all oh. of them, just the flushing. I will the second well, shot as well. Yeah, I mean, you can't get too close because you've got to. You're talking, so you've got to keep a wee bit away from them. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, I mean, you love. I love watching Louis Eustace, and doesn't everybody? I mean, and the the two shots. He hit up the uh, the last hole. I mean, the, the, everybody's talking about the second shot, but I tell you what, the drive was absolutely magnificent. You could, as I said on the radio, you could not have dropped it in a better spot than he put. It. I mean, it's just incredible how good it was. And under knowing that he probably he probably stood on that tee thinking he's got he had to make an eagle uh, to have any chances, and that's exactly what he did. With two absolutely majestic shots, fantastic stuff. Hey, what's his ball for? And that's a hard, hard sorry. I was going to ask a hard drive too. It's narrow, narrow. Yeah, I mean, there was there's not much to aim at off the tee. I mean, it was only about probably 15 yards. The the bit where the fairway where he his ball was, and it was just as I say, I was just I was so impressed. What a great shot! What's his natural ball ball flight, Huggy? Was he was he hitting one yard draws or? Man, I think it's pretty neutral. I mean, I don't think these guys, none of these guys, they talk about oh, I I can shape the ball, I do, I can hit it both ways, but. I don't see them doing that very often. I mean, if it moves in the air, it's because of the wind. Um, the, the you know the equipment just doesn't encourage them to. It doesn't. The ball doesn't spin enough for them to move it sideways. That's another thing. I mean, Mike's talked you know eloquently there about how it goes too far, but it doesn't go sideways nearly enough. I mean, it's it's pretty um, one-dimensional stuff at the top level. But I, I don't blame them for a minute because it's it's just easier to do that than try and you know you'd have to sort of try and have to snap hook it or perhaps a snap hook swing and it would have been in the past to move the ball you know five yards right to left in the air now so which is unfortunate because as I've said many times I mean nobody at the top level is playing golf like Lee Trevino or Seve apart from Bubba Watson and how can the game possibly be better if that's the case yeah, I'm not sure about the the ball doesn't go sideways, Huggy. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about for guys at the top level. I'm not not for you, you chopper. Uh, anyway, listen, Clates, um you spent the week caddying for Elvis Smiley. Uh, did he win the low Smiley in the field, or did uh, Smiley Coffin beat no, him in the end? No, he won. Smiley Coffin beat him by a shot. Did he? <laughs> but they caught up with each other at the end of the end of the round, which was good. That was fun. Here, Clates, I wanted to ask you, uh, and we might get you to write a piece for issue four on this. How many guys and gals is that you've carried for in serious, serious golf tournaments? I mean, there's a few now, isn't there? A few, yeah. Um, I've carried for Sue O quite a lot in the in the what's now the ANA tournament. It was the Craft Nabisco then, and the British Open and the Olympics and. Bunch of Australian Opens. Okay, for Christina Kim this year at the Vic Open and the Australian Open. Uh, Curtis Luck in the Australian Open a couple of years ago. Elvis in this one. So um, I'm going for Lucas Michelle in the US Open next year at Wingfoot. The one the US Mid Amateur. I know year. that. Yeah. So a few. It's it's kind of good fun. It's kind of you know it's a way of being involved in the competition without being involved in it in terms of making yourself mad. So it's um, but it's fun being involved. I enjoy it. You know, you kind of, you know, you're aware on Friday that you know, when you're cutting that one, I won't be thinking. You know, the cut lines here. And I'm, 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 I assume Elvis thought about it, but it didn't look like it. He shot 67 and made it by four shots and didn't ever appear to be looking like he was thinking. He never once asked me what the cut was going to be, or so he just cruised his way through that, but. Um, yeah, you know those when you're playing, you're always aware of what it's going to be, and 
so it was it was fun. So yeah, I, I enjoy carrying it. It's, it's, it's a way to be involved in it, really. The uh, did he? Yeah. You know, sorry. I was going to ask. Yeah. Did he? Did he? How much did he ask you? What did he ask you? Were you doing yardages? Were you? Are we just luggage? Yeah, we did all the yardages. Yeah, we pretty much you know, spoke about every shot really. What club he was going to hit? A, a complete opposite to Christina Kim, who picked every club herself. I just carried the clubs out. But um, with Elvis, we kind of talked over every shot, and we, I think, by the by the time we got around to, I think you need to, you know, we did a couple of practice rounds, but by the time we were sort of halfway through Thursday, we had a pretty good idea of, well, I had a pretty good idea of what club he was going to hit, and you know, we, well, it always comes down to two, really. There's no, you know, there's there's really a really Obvious one, but it's interesting is how far they hit their short irons. I mean, he can be 90 yards away and he's pulling out a 58 degree wedge. And it's just a, it's a shot I don't see because I, I can I don't get that. But um, we were pretty good but in the end. I think we didn't make too many mistakes. Uh, did you which do is the idea? Did you do any uh, green reading? Uh, no, and I no, because. Um, <laughs> Well, I, I I never liked it. I always I, I never asked Katie to. Well, I did. I just never felt comfortable or right. And he, he he asked me a couple of times, but um, I always think players are better off reading their own greens. Why is you that? Know, I think pulling. Well, I just I don't know. I don't know. I just I always felt for me it was annoying to have someone else reading the greens. We, I'd try it and we'd go three or four holes. I look at fine. Let's do it myself. And and he didn't ask much, and he he didn't. He went the week without three putting. He he didn't miss a short. He missed maybe one putt inside four feet. So he's a really competent putter who doesn't need any help. So and I was a lousy putter. So why would he ask me? Um, the um yeah because players see putts at different speeds, don't they? So the break's going to be different. So you you know you might see it differently from him. Is the exact same putt. Yeah, plus he was left-handed, so oh. you know I was I, I would kind of I would stand on my side of the ball, and I I, I sort of got a sense that sometimes I was feeling something different from because because he was standing on the other side of it. Well, I don't know if that makes sense. Whether yeah. his feet were kind of higher or lower than mine, and it felt somewhat felt slightly different. Because I I never carried for left-handed before. It was weird, kind of going to the other side of the tee and. Making sure you were standing on the proper side of him, which is you, you, you're so used to standing on the, you know, the, 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 well, you always stand for the caddy, so you always stand facing them. I'm so used to standing where you stand for a right-handed player. You always got to pay attention that you stand on the right side of it for a left-hander. But we played with Mike Weir the first day, so we were on one side of the tent. Rob Pampling was on the other side over by himself, which was. Probably doesn't probably doesn't happen that often in pro golf with two left-handers together. How did have uh, a vested interest in Rod Pampling? How did he play? Well, he spoke about um, you, Niall, and he said see the same teacher, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spoke about that. I was with my, my, my Lawrence Donegan sends his kid to the guy that you see. He, he didn't know you, but he he was uh, yeah, it was the same teacher. So. Um, he teaches the kind of Gary Edwards stuff, but which is a, he was a teacher in Australia who taught Rod way back years ago. So he's teaching a lot of the same stuff, I think. He is. I'll tell you a quick story about uh, Rod Pampling, which, uh, you know, and, and what it takes to be a professional golfer. 
I take the kid down for a lesson. It's uh, it's a driving range uh, just under the uh, flight path of San Francisco Airport. It's a Saturday morning. It's 8 a.m. and it's miserable. Dank, miserable, raining, planes flying overhead. Get there at 7.45 a.m. And who's in there getting a lesson? Rod Pampling. 2,000 miles from his home in Dallas or wherever it is he lives in Texas. And I just think, my goodness. That's that. I mean, the guy's at this time, he's probably 47, 48 years old. I think he's 50 now, isn't he? Uh, he's 50. Like, he played a couple of Champions Tour events. So, so he'll, he's a good player. Right? Oh, I mean, he yeah. still plays well. So he'll do okay out there, I think. Uh, well, he can't, he's not, I don't think, he's, well, not speaking, uh, I mean, I don't know, I've never, but I don't think he's a very good putter from what I can gather. Uh, so, no, I think he's horrible, but, he, but he's a lot. You know, and another guy, I mean, Mike Weir's had a miserable time of it, but he he finished up, he looked like he was going to miss the cut by a shot. He hit a couple of great shots into the ninth hole on Friday and missed about a eight footer to make the cut, which he thought was to make the cut. In fact, it would have missed by two, but um, he's playing pretty well, Mike Weir. He'll yeah. surprise a few people out there, I think. Uh, Huggy, uh, Sergio Garcia, I'm trying to think of the appearance money guys, Garcia, Casey... Did they give their money's worth when they were down there? Sergio uh, Well, Cup. Yeah, there was quite a few. The big names was Adam Scott uh, disappeared. Uh, not that you would um, fault him for lack of effort. I mean, he uh, he gave it. Every, he got up and down. He drove into the water on the his last hole in the second round and got a par of after a drop. So um, you couldn't and missed by one. So you couldn't fault Adam for effort. I mean, yeah, I can't. Uh, he and he had he just. Uh, he had a poor uh, first round, and that kind of cost him. But uh, uh, yeah, Sergio missed the cut. Uh, how, was, uh, was, how was Sergio's interaction with the? Was he good with the fans? And um, not that I saw. I mean, he was his usual self, as far as I could see. And he had a horrendous putt on the, what what was his last hole uh, to get to two over. Where um, I think it was it, to, to be fair, one over wasn't looking too good, but. Uh, he, I mean, he missed from about a yard, and it was a horrendous pull. I mean, uh, missing, but comfortably missed the hole, shall we say? So uh, he was down the road. Um, but Casey, Paul Casey, uh, on the other hand, he uh, was in a terrific mood all week. Um, he can be a bit up and down with uh, the media, especially. But he was terrific. I can't say enough. Speak highly enough about all the stuff he did last week. He was. From what I observed, he was great with the kids and signed all the autographs, and he was in fine fettle talking to the media after every round. So uh, he uh, he was well worth the money. The um, I th- I noticed that it's funny you should bring him up. I saw him on TV. He hit a bad shot, and he and his his reaction was, I was like blown away. Mm-hmm. And he, he looked. I mean, he didn't look happy. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he was he was in contention till you know maybe. Just the early part of the back nine on the on the last round. I mean, it, where he kind of drifted off. But um, I mean, he played the last few holes. I mean, I was watching him. He was playing with Ustazen when I was with him, and you could tell he, he, his race had been run. Um, but he was, you know, he's he stuck in there right to the end. Here, Clates, I, I'm sure you, maybe you do know. I don't know, and maybe if you do know, you might not want to tell me. What would a guy like Garcia get paid for going down there and playing the Aussie Open? I assume five hundred thousand Australian dollars, which is how you got two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, it'd be in that area, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
<laughs> it's a long way for two rounds of golf, isn't it? Oh, hang on a second. Huggy. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way. For, well, it's, it's pretty pretty good good payment. Um, I don't know how many Aussie Opens this you've been at Huggy. How, how does this one rate? I mean, it was pretty exciting at the end. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been to about oh, maybe the last 15, something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this was maybe the best field that I've seen in all that time. It's certainly at the top end of it. Um, the, they had a terrible run of things with the, the One Asia Tour was involved uh, up until a few years ago. And I, I think the One Asia Tour is now defunct. But I remember playing in the Pro-Am um, oh, 10 really years ago yeah. in New South Wales uh, with this kid that I was a better player than he was and he was in the field and I was writing about it. <laughs> when, and, and I wasn't any great shakes, let me tell you. And he was even worse. So, um, but they've come a long way since that. The the, the field is getting deeper and deeper. I think there's a lot of good young Aussie players, um, guys that I names that I was maybe seen once or twice, but wasn't that familiar with. But you watch them on the range, and I tell you, a lot of guys they really flush it. It's, it's quite impressive. Um, speaking of great uh, young Aussie talents, Clates, I noticed that uh, Ryan Ruffles uh, got his Corn Ferry Tour card. Uh, finished seventh on the Order of Merit, the Latin American Tour. Did you notice that? I did see that. So, uh, about time, really. Even though he's still 21, maybe. 21. Yeah, 21. So he's still young. I mean, he was, yeah. But yeah, as good as he is, that's take. It's taken him a while to get to that point. So next year, he he doesn't need to be on the PGA Tour at 23, which would 22, which would still be incredibly young to be on the PGA Tour. But I would have thought. When he turned pro four years ago, if someone had said he will be on the PGA Tour in five years, that would have been a reasonable expectation, given how well he played. Really? So I, we'll see. Yeah, well, do you think... I mean, you've seen them all, Clates. Do you think he's the best of the kind of, you know, Curtis Luck and... I don't know, I can't remember all the names, but there's a, a, a few of them. Uh, yeah, Brett Coletta is really good. He, yeah, um... Yeah, he, well, he was at 15. Tommy Watson, a friend of mine who came to stay on you for years, came for him in the Vic Open where he finished third or fourth. And he couldn't believe how good he was. He said, every shot I called, he hit. Wow. It was amazing. So he's been through a kind of a rough patch and changed teachers and gone back to his original teacher. And You know, I, th- I think if you're a – I was thinking about it yesterday. If you're a player, if you can – not change your caddy, your teacher, your clubs, or your wife in your career. You'll <laughs> probably do okay. Uh, <laughs> that, that would be a pretty good goal. And has anyone? Can you think of a golfer who's done that? <laughs> well, Jack Nicholas was pretty close. Yeah, that's true. Which was kind of well. Hello, you know. Yeah. One wife played with the McGregor club. Same three with his whole career. Basically, played with the same golf club his whole career. Jack Grout until he died taught him, and what was the other one? Um, Caddy. Well, Angelo came for Angelo and Jimmy Dickinson came for him forever. He changed his so, agent though. Well, yeah, well, and that was a you know a that mess. was a disaster. That was a mess because he, yeah, bank- <laughs> he, yeah. yeah. he ended up bankrupt, didn't he? Did he? He oh, did. Yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah. Three times. I think. Yeah, yeah. Leaving McCormick was a probably a mistake for Jack in the end, but. But yeah, so caddy, clubs, wife, uh, teacher, Jack, probably number one. Yeah. So if that's a, that's not a bad 
benchmark, is it, to so, set and to follow, I would have thought. Where did it all go wrong yeah. for you then, Clates? <laughs> well, they're the same wife. <laughs> uh, here, Clates, where would you uh, put the uh, 2019, we'll just wrap up on the, on the Aussie Open with it, where would you put, I mean, there's a, I mean, the course presented pretty nicely on TV. I don't think it's a. I don't think I would remember any of the holes, but uh, it looked nice. it was it looked great on TV actually. Uh, yeah, it was in good condition. Yeah, great. It was in great shape. It was um, it played well. <laughs> well, uh, the, the best open of recent memory was two eleven when it was the it got the sugar hit from the Presidents Cup. So Tiger, Dustin Johnson, Bill Haas, Tom Watson came down played. Mm. That was a tremendous field. Yeah, that's uh, true. So this one got a similar kind of boost from the President's Cup being this week in Melbourne. So, Although none of the Americans were here, but might have done Patrick Reed some good to be down here instead of oh. calling controversy in the Bahamas. But We'll, we'll, um, we'll come to that in a minute. Here, we'll just quickly yeah. run through uh, the European Tour. Was it the Mauritius, Mauritius Open, Huggy? I've written all these notes down. I forgot to write down the name of the tournament. Yeah. I, I don't know that I can't remember the name of the tournament, but yes, they were in Mauritius. I can confirm that. Yes. Well, a, a tournament. I don't know the name of it, but I know it was won by Kurt Kitayama last year. Uh, anyway, this year it was won by. Right, I'll get the pronunciation wrong here. Rasmus Hogyard, I think, eighteen years old. Unbelievable. Uh, the youngest winner. Although this, I, I dreaded to read this. The youngest winner on the European tour since Huggy. Yeah, we're talking really? about today, Huggy. No. It was it Matteo Manassero? I oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very sad story. Um, I get I get upset just thinking about him because I I watched him play great golf and I've watched him play some absolute rubbish as well. So it's a very sad story. Uh, and he hasn't changed his wife. He's got. I'm sure he has. Anyway, um, so <laughs> Hog Hogyard, we're three elderly gents here. Uh, so we're not going to profess to know a huge amount about uh, young Rasmus. Well, I, t I tell you one thing about him, Lawrence, and I read this today. I, Michael heard me say earlier that uh, he's the first player ever to win on either the European Tour or the PGA Tour who was born in this century. There you go, Huggy. That's why you're on the show. That's why yeah. you you are Mr. Moaning Drive. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, he's a twin brother. Clayton's his twin. Can you can you believe it? His twin brother. I think his twin brother is a better amateur than, than him. Nikolai uh, reached number five in the amateur world rankings. Uh, they won the Eisenhower Trophy together with some other fella. Um, mm -hmm. That was in Ireland, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, anyway, 18 years old. My goodness. I was just, uh, you know, I better I'll, I'll wake the lad up in the morning and tell him you've got four years. Get on with it. Why aren't you practicing your puns? <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Hurry up. Get me, used to the, uh, get me into the style to which I want to become accustomed. Here, uh, so that was Europe. I got took care of my Ryan Ruffles. Uh, in fact, I keep a good uh, close eye on him. I love the way he swings the club plates. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, he's good. Yeah. And uh, I remember taking. Uh, we went down to Pebble Beach to. He got an invite to the Pebble Beach pro am, and I think we were the only people following his group apart from his coach. And he walked, took the took the trouble to walk under the ropes and all the way over to give the wee man a ball. So. Uh, which I believe now still has. So that, that's uh, we'll always be Ryan Ruffle fans in this household. Uh, here the other big tournament. Good, good. Uh, that's you like to hear that though, don't you? I mean, what does it cost them? I mean, what does yeah. it? I mean, yeah. 
Did you do that, Clay? Oh, there'll be no... Was there somewhere... oh, I don't want to be insulted. Oh, I might used to get no, away by the box load. Oh, hang on a sec. You gave away somebody... I had on a, another show somewhere. Didn't you tell... That's an amazing story, Clay. Didn't you give somebody's putter away? Was it Bradley Hughes's? Was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was that? What, what was that story? Can you remember it? Oh, I, don't, I don't remember doing it, but I'm sure... No, well, I vaguely do, but... He told he told the story. He said, "I walked up and said, Hughes, that part is a complete piece of shit.'" And I took it out of his bag, gave it to some kid. <laughs> <laughs> I just love uh, that story. Here, mind you, mind you, David Graham used to give his putter away every week in Australia to some kid on that seventy-second green. You know, if he'd had a bad week, he just gave it to some kid on the side of the green. Yeah, but he didn't but, um, give he didn't give it one of his plane partners. He didn't give the plane partners yeah, putter away. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> So how about Brad Hughes? How, well, I was going to ask you. Uh, it's incredible. I heard you talking about this. Well, obviously the Brendan Todd stuff, but uh, you talked about him rescuing somebody in the street. Oh, uh, Chalmers, Greg Chalmers. Greg Chalmers. I didn't realize we played a practice round with Chalmers on Monday, and or Tuesday, Monday, I think. And he, uh, I, I don't know. I just assumed he'd been playing. I just didn't, wasn't paying much attention. He hadn't played a tournament for a year, and he'd been working with Hughesy. And he turned up last week and finished fifth. And he was playing well. I kind of didn't really notice, but I didn't ask him about it. It was only at the end of the week I found out he hadn't played. You know, I knew he'd been working with Brad, but I hadn't realised he hadn't played all year. Phenomenal. That was a nice week for him. Do you have an opinion on the stuff that Hughes is teaching? What what was his swing like when he was a player? It was good, and he was a really good player. He could really hit it. He could really hit it. He hit a, He won the Australian Masters one year, hitting a three iron to about four feet in the last hole at Huntingdale. He hit a great shot. But he could really, he was a really good player. And he always stayed the swing. He knew a lot about it, studied it, and he, he studied it more since he stopped playing. But like everyone, you, you can be a great teacher, but if you don't stumble across someone who you help a lot, who's publicly you know, whose struggles are visible or whose form drastically improves once you've helped them. But you couldn't wish for better than a guy who'd missed 40 cuts out of 46 tournaments and was done with golf. You had to come out and win two weeks in a row, almost win three in a row. It's kind of a teacher's dream, really, is to coach someone like that. And not, all of a sudden, you're the flavour of the month. And not that that's, that's necessarily a good thing either, but... You know, Huggy and I were talking about before about whether the time Manasero could be that he could do worse than go and see someone who's proven he can help someone with this full swing yips, which is what Brendan Todd had. So it's fine to teach good players how to play better, but when someone's got their yips and they don't know where it's going and they're scared to hit the ball, which is where Ruffles was it a year and a half ago, then you know, someone who's proved they can get dig someone out of that hole, then you know they can really teach. That's not easy. Well, well, I'm sure there's plenty of guys in Todd's position that have gone to teachers and the teachers haven't been able to help. You know, so I mean, Hughes has obviously got well, something. Well, I think. Yeah, well, I think every teacher Brendan went to was telling him the exact opposite of what Hughes told him to do. He had a big flare to the right, and they were telling him to close his club face down on the downswing and try and keep it shut. And, I don't know. I'm, 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 the, the technicalities of the swing are lost. I mean, 
a proper teacher would, would be able to explain it better than I can. But Musi told him the complete opposite. When the ball's going way to the right, I think he said, feel like the phase is more open, not less open, which is completely counterintuitive. But it worked. So good for him. He's teaching Ollie Snyder jams now. He was been working with Russell Knox for a while now. Greg Chalmers. So he's um, he's developing a nice little pool of players, which is good. I noticed, uh, I never say a bad uh, thing about Hughes. I love his follow on Twitter. I love the stuff he posts. He posts lots of great swing videos, so check it out if you haven't checked it out already. But I noticed tonight on his Twitter feed, clicks the Brendan Todd thing, you know, he's got some guy to cut my, a little board that Todd, uh, all his players, well, not all, but certainly the ones that kind of come to prominence recently, yep. they put this board between their two feet Anyway, he announced on Twitter tonight it's currently under production and will be on the market in 2020. <laughs> a plank. Just a plank. Go to the local hardware shop and buy a plank yeah. of wood. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of uh, Huggy. Well, and actually there's a good chance here to speak up for David Ledbetter, but remember back in the day when Ledbetter, he he really pioneered that, the you know, marketing yourself. <clears throat> But, uh, well, yeah, there, there was a lot of gimmicks, a lot of stuff. Uh, I remember we did a parody sort of spoof picture where we got all the, the paraphernalia that he had lying around at Lake Nona at the time. It was beach balls and straps and things. Oh, he put them all on and it, you could barely see them underneath all this stuff. <laughs> the one that was the, uh, actually, on the, we did a, a piece in the Guardian. It was during the Open about, and it was, a, the, it was a big picture of a David Ledbetter. It was essentially a beach ball with two hands mm-hmm. painted on it. And it was uh, yeah. the eighteen-pound beach ball. Has golf coaching <laughs> gone too far? <laughs> yeah, there was plenty of that. I mean, there was stuff everywhere on the range at Lake Nona. I can still see it. <clears throat> it was just all this paraphernalia. There was things to keep your knees together, things to keep make your knees go further apart, things to keep your left heel down, things to get your left heel up. It was. It was, uh, it was like the hokey cokey. Was there anything to help you shake it all about? <laughs> I know, I know. It was incredible. There was, st- I mean, straps and, you know, oh, I can't even describe half of the stuff. But the beach ball was um, used to go between the knees. That's that was right. that was where that yeah, that one was went. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was funny. And he, and to be fair to him, uh, he made he was quite happy to make fun of himself with that picture because there was a, there was stuff all over him. Well, and, and, and you know, I, I don't know if any, I don't hang about with golf coaches, but if anybody feels inclined, well, I know some players, don't they call him lead poison or something? But, you know, he was a guy that taught, that he blazed a trail for golf coaches in the sense of, you know, he became a personality. And there's a, a lot of them try to do that now. And so uh, they all quite a lot yeah, to, well, to well, David Ledbetter. Yeah, he did it. I mean, Faldo was what really made his name, but uh, he'd done it, he'd done what he done for what he did for Faldo he'd already done for Nick Price That's basically right. so um, I mean he well, was, and that, you know, and these guys go in and out of fa- favour like you know like yeah. you know, whatever football football managers but uh, you know David Ledbetter's had his successes and his failures but his successes were big successes he did a great job with Dennis Watson and Mark Minoli and David Frost so, you know, so, so hmm. way back in the early 80s he, he, he was he was flying then and then, of course, Faldo came along you know, after those four guys. But you know, really, he was the guy who made his name. But he did a great job with Nick Price. Wow, he was a tremendous player. Yeah, I've seen Obviously. sequences of Nick Price you know, before Ledbetter got hold of him. And he's, he was all over the place. 
I mean, you, you, it's hard to believe that it is Nick Price when you see the sequence, but uh, compared with what they turned out, um, I must admit, the, the, when I used to go to Lake Nona a lot when I was at Digest and, and I did I was ghosting Ledbetter stories and Faldos and Nick Prices, and they often, you know, the three of them would be there and I'd be hanging about waiting for one or the other, uh, or probably David Ledbetter, and he'd be teaching one of them, and the other guy would be hitting balls and... I always watched Nick Price hit balls. I never watched Nick Faldo once. When even when Nick Faldo was done more and right player in the world, I was out the other end of the range watching Nick Price. He was just fantastic. And and presumably better company as well. But, um, uh, it's slightly more talkative. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> Here, Clates, and this is a serious question: Have you ever used a gadget, to, you know, to help your swing? Have you ever? You know, had a tennis ball between your elbows or a beach ball between your legs. Did you ever? Did you ever use that kind of stuff? Did I? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I had gloves under my arm and head covers under my gloves under my right arm and head covers under my left arm and um, yeah, I never went and used some sort of gadget, I suppose. But I mean, the biggest gadget has a track man, isn't it? Yeah. You don't need gadgets if you've got a mm. track man. So gadgets are kind of out of favour a little bit, probably. But um, anyway, there was a strap. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, flying elbow, so there was a strap you could that blue strap. That maybe that was a lead better thing that it was strapped yeah. around your yeah. strapped around your right arm to try and. Which, if you didn't understand why your right arm flew away from your body, it wasn't much useful. As soon as you took it off, it went back to doing what it always <laughs> did. The, yeah, so the one that really sticks in my mind is remember. Uh, Harrington showed up with a straight jacket, you know, with the with yeah. essentially a straight jacket, <laughs> which is appropriate in a way because he was he was up for anything, Podrick. I mean, he would try anything once. Uh, phenomenal. Uh, anyway, the Bradley Hughes um, plank will be available uh, in twenty twenty. Good luck to him. Uh, seems like a brilliant guy and good, good podcast actually as well. So check it out, the Bradley Hughes podcast. I think it's called. Here, cracking on very quickly, before I want to finish with the President's Cup, but uh, the Hero Challenge, whatever it is, won by Henrik Stenson, 18 under par. Uh, he wins a million dollars. We were talking about this uh, last week, Huggy, the world ranking points. There are world ranking points available for the 18-man uh, invitational yeah. field. And the, the one thing I did dredge up today, if you go through all the stages of qualifying at the US Open, make it to the tournament and finish tied 50th, you get less world ranking points than the guy who finishes dead flat last at the Hero World Challenge. Uh, how, how on earth is that fair? Well, yeah, we, we touched on this last week. I mean, it's pretty shameful. The, the, there should be a minimum number of players that needs to be in the field um, for any event that gets world ranking points. And I think we both agreed that it should be substantially more than 18. Uh, that's that's a, that's just nonsense. I mean, any any sane person would look at that and just start shaking their head. It's just crazy. Clates, any opinion on that stuff? Uh, aside from the fact that I don't care, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> my thought was yeah, to fake Tiger really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but the idea you you know, you make it all the way through the U.S. Open and you make the cut. And then Bubba Watson, so I didn't, I'm not going to besmirch Bubba Watson. I don't know how he did or how he played last week in the Bahamas, but he finished last, so presumably didn't play that well. Made 100 grand as well. So, here about yeah, Nice work. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah, they all talk about 
I mean, I get it. They all talk about growing the game. They're running off to Saudi Arabia to grow the game. Oh. Yeah, this, the Australian Open could do worse than have half those guys come and play. And when Huggy made a great point last week. You know, every top 50 player in the world should one week a year go and pick a tournament that really needs them to play and go and play it. You know, it's a com- rubbish platitude that's growing the game. If you want to grow the game, go and play the Vic Open or the Mauritius Open or you know, the Indonesian PGA or something that actually would get an amazing boost if a really good player turned up and played it. Just once a, once a year. Because you're not going to grow the game in Saudi Arabia, really. I mean, the women can't even drive cars there yet, can they? Yeah. So, but there are lots of tournaments that could do with, you know, one tournament a year, charity donation from these guys who've got more money than God. Just go and play and fit it in and make the effort. And not that hard flying down the front of a very flash aeroplane. Yeah. You're right. I mean, if you make that the top 50 plates... You would have one somewhere in the world every week of the year, pretty much. I mean, yeah, you would. It's probably only two weeks of the year where there isn't a tournament. So, the top fifty, if every one of them did that, every they'd have everything covered. I mean, what a, that what, what a great idea. The, the other thing is, just in terms of branding yourself. So, say player X went and did did what you just said, Huggy. Every podcast on earth, like this one, would be all over him. We yeah, would be, exactly. We would be loving this guy. Well, that I think what kicked this discussion off was Jason Day uh, not playing in the Australian Open last week. For you know, he, he's injured. Fair enough. But this is not. He's done this a few times. He's he's been in the field for the Australian Open. Then he's pulled out and blah blah blah. And he hasn't played in very many. And he doesn't come back to Australia enough enough. But what he should have done. I mean, he got terrible press down here. I mean, basically slaughtered for not coming yet again. What he should have done, he says, "Look, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, I get this. I'm, I know I've done this before. It's unfortunate. I'm, I'm injured. I can't play right now. But next year, I am coming, and I'm going to come and play for nothing." And he could have turned the whole thing round. He would have been a hero. But no, he has to. Just, he just says, "You know, can't come. Sorry, heart back. See you next year, maybe if you pay the money again." Yeah. And sadly, there was well, not curiously, there was given that I assume they'd saved it serious chunk of money by not having to pay his appearance fee didn't finish up going into any of it going into the prize money yeah nothing changed nothing changed yeah I mean Jack Nicholas came down to the Australian Open one year I don't think unbelievably expecting any money and when he they sort of said Jack you're 250,000 he put it in the purse you're kidding me he put it in the purse yeah good for him Wow. I don't know. But, but, well, because previously his deal was, I think this is right, that Kerry Packer, when Packer ran the Open 75 to 78, there were four big Opens out. Nicholas bought all, all his mates down, Peyton Crenshaw and Litsky in January, and Miller Barber and Palmer and all those guys. They all came and played Joe McGee. And they all got $6,000 each. That was a deal. And I think Jack assumed when he came back in, 1982, that, that would be the same deal. And he got there and there was, I think it was 250000 And he said, no, he put it in the purse, he said. So that'll tell you how much the game's changed in 40 years oh, or got, whatever. We've got to be careful, Cleats. Um, we'll get our, our morning drive. To, we don't want to 
superhjärnan mål. Yeah. Det är... Det är... Anyway, Come least... on, Patrick Reed. Let's get to Patrick well, Reed for goodness sake. Stop procrastinating, no, no, man. No, no, no. This is what people want to hear about. No, it's not. No, well, well, they don't want to hear from me because I've been on it all day on Twitter. So, I'll, you know, if you want to know what I think, yeah, go and read Twitter. <laughs> uh, the uh, so the main story is obviously the Patrick Reed thing. Uh, what day? What was it? The Saturday? It was a Saturday. No, it was a, no. Yeah. It was, well, it was a third round. Again, we're going to talk, I can't even remember what hole it was. Was it the eleventh hole? Or, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. I mean, all those holes just blend in for me. I, I, you know, I, regard wherever it was. I, uh, I think it was anyway. So, well, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen it. Uh, Clates, what, what was your view on it? I uh, of what he did, and and what was done. What do you think? I mean, there's two separate issues, isn't there? Well, he clearly broke the rule. And it's pretty hard to imagine a pro doing something like that, really. I mean, it's very blatant. And clearly a penalty. I'm not sure why it wasn't a four-shot penalty, given he improved his life twice. You know, that's not good enough. We'll do it again. And you, you, you know as a player, you don't do that. You can't do that. You just... I mean, he ahead. You can't argue camera angle rubbish. So people can make of what what they want with the how they want to describe it, but you know there there isn't a word in the rule book under that, that says cheat. That, that isn't part of the game. You either play by the you either break the rule or you don't break the rule. He broke the rule, and he took the requisite penalty. So. You know, I think he's right that you can't throw that word around because you don't know what his intent was or what he thought he was doing or whether he had a brain fade or whether it was a bad camera angle or whatever. But, you know, people make their own minds up and the players don't ever unsee that. It was the same as the Lucas Herbert being in Dubai at the start of the year. The players don't ever unsee that stuff. So, I mean, Patrick Reed's reputation... I don't think it's great anyway, but certainly won't have helped it around the world. The um, I think it was Rule 8.1a. I'm not an expert on the rules and I don't care to be, but uh, Frank Noblo was uh, mentioned yesterday. You can only, it's all treated as one action, you know, because it's, it involves one shot. So whatever you do beforehand is treated yeah. as, as one, yeah. one action. Yeah. So he basically could have done it 15 times and taken these two-shot penalty. He might as well got a, a shovel out. Uh, and, and teed it up. And teed it up. I mean, why, why, you know, why yeah. not? If it's going to be if you're going to dump me two shots, I'm going to tee it up. Man. <laughs> well, so. Uh, so I mean, again, there's, there's no point in bitching about the rule book. Uh, you know, it's not. It's never going to be perfect. Uh, Huggy, what was what was your view of it? I, I want to ask you. I want to come back to you, Clayton, and ask about this issue of intent. Uh, yeah. But Huggy. Well, I mean- yeah, it's we can all think what we what we want to think about it, and I suspect that pretty much all of us who played golf, you know, at any kind of level. I mean, this is this applies to all golfers. I think we all pretty much looked at that and thought the same thing. However, you can't actually prove that Patrick Reed cheated. Only he knows what he was up to. Did he? He only he knows whether what happened was intentional or accidental. There is absolutely no way that any of us 
can say absolutely with 100% certainty one way or the other. Um, that's just the fact. It's just the fact of life. So you can't prove it. You know, everybody's banded. This word cheat gets banded around a lot, but you can't actually prove it. I mean, the, as I've said many times, the, the, there's laws in place to protect the guilty. And you can't be saying somebody's a cheat when you, the, especially when Slugger White, the, the rules official, which I thought was ri ridiculously uh, what he came out with. He, he called Patrick Reed a gentleman in, in the aftermath of this and the way he behaved in, in accepting the, the two shots. Well, I don't think that Patrick Reed had much option but to accept <laughs> the two shots. I mean, there it was on film. I mean, we all watched him do it. You know, so there wasn't any doubt about whether he broke the rule. That that is one hundred. That's the hundred percent certain part of this. But the the cheating part again. I'm just you just can't say it. You, you can't because only he knows. Uh, it's funny you should bring that up, Huggy. Uh, I I well remember spending a week in the High Court in London uh, covering a, a a libel case uh, of a mm -hmm. golfer from I think it was Notts Golf Club. Uh, what's that? Right. Uh, good golf course actually. Hollandwell. That, that's it. I think it is. Yeah, really good golf course. I went out and played it. Uh, the yeah. um, I, I, you know, he'd been accused of cheating in the club championship, and it went all the way to the high court. Uh, so it's pretty serious stuff to be to be thrown around. Uh, although not so much in the states, uh, where the libel laws are markedly different. I don't know what the libel laws are like in Australia, but in uh, certainly in the UK, uh, you. The onus is on the accuser to prove the accusation, whereas in the States, yeah. it's all about uh, if you make the accusation in good faith, then uh, you're essentially covered. Uh, yeah, but we, we do take this very seriously. I, I, would, I, saw, um, I was with Tom Callahan, a great friend, about a month ago in America, and he was telling me the story back in the day. I can't remember how long ago this was, but he was doing this story, and this guy was in the jail. Uh, he was a murderer. He'd, he'd murdered somebody and he'd, he'd been accused of cheating at golf and Tom went to see him and he, he freely admitted he freely admitted to the murder but he was vehement that he'd never cheated at golf this was this was beyond the pale this was one accusation too many for this guy so it just shows you how seriously some people take it my goodness the uh, the here the, here's this thing so I want to ask you this as the as a well, you were a proper golfer, Huggy, but Clates is a seriously proper golfer. Uh, do you take it a practice swing, Clates? Have you, would you have you ever put? Do you ever started a practice swing by putting the club the club head right behind the ball? Uh, no, never. No, no. I, I, well, what well, with a driver you do, but well, you never do with an iron because you. Um, no, well, if you, well, I, I wasn't a great practice swinger, but and I don't really know what I did. But no, you would never start with the ball. Well, you would certainly never do what he did. Well, that's yeah. but but you know you're yeah. you're try, any any reasonable person trying to to judge what his intent is. For me, a, a reasonable person can look at his practice swing. Nobody, no professional golfer in the world starts his practice swing by placing the club head right behind the ball. No one. No. Right. No, and he and he and he didn't do it once. He did it twice, and he removed sand both times. I'm sorry, as a reasonable person, that to me tells me as much as I need to know about his intent. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't know, Clay. So, I mean, do you have a view on? I mean, are you, I mean, on the face of it, I guess Huggy's right, isn't he? Well, I know that when Jane Blaylock took the LPGA to court, I mean, they 
Barry Play's brother-in-law took the South African PGA to court. They both won and almost bankrupted. Well, they, I think, did almost, if not bankrupt, the, the South African tour. And Blaylock won her case easily, despite all the evidence to the contrary. That, um, so you can bet if F. Lee Bailey or whoever got O.J. Simpson off, it would be child's play to get Patrick Reed off that charge. You know, the two are calling a gentleman. The two are yeah, calling a gentleman. You just have to quote Slugger White. That's that's all the the lawyer would have to do. It wouldn't get anywhere near a court. Well, and then he would say, "Yes, yeah, so I agree. My client broke the rule, but he didn't cheat." Yeah, right? the, um, he only broke the rule, and, and and that happens every week on the tour. Someone breaks the rule. This is just another incident of a player breaking a rule. Uh, there is an but, argument. Yeah. So, sorry, go on. Sorry, go on, Clayton. Sorry. No. Well, I think anyone who's played golf would kind of knows what they can make up their own mind about what happened and the judgment is going to be pretty harsh but you know i wouldn't want to stand up in court and be interrogated by a proper lawyer because he would make me look like an idiot yeah the thing though is the other the other court the, the one of public opinion is going to be you know pretty damning i would have thought well, Patrick Reed doesn't care about the court of public opinion that's the thing but yeah, uh, apparently yeah. not yeah um the, the other argument well, well, plays so I was going to say, Clay, so other, uh, somebody raised the point that it could have been done under uh, that rule 1.2a, 1. I think. Is that the one that got Garcia booted out of the uh, the Saudi Arabian tournament last year? Yeah. Uh, conduct, what's that, conduct unbecoming yeah, or something? Yeah, so, something like that, yes. you know. Yeah. Uh, Even that's a stretch, though. I mean, you just can't, you can't prove that either. Yeah. The, uh, well, again, look at the case of... So you can't... Well, you can't prove it. You, okay, you prove it. Prove that he did that. Well, hang on a sec. Well, let's try this. Simon Dyson was essentially run out of golf. He was fined 30 grand and suspended two months by the European Tour, but essentially basically run out of golf for what he did, you know, tapping down that spike mark with his ball, marking his ball and Which, lifting his ball yeah. and tapping it down. He was run out of the game. Which uh, was much less egregious than what happened last weekend, I thought. Mm, didn't you? Yeah. Plus, uh, it's now legal what he did. Uh, the other, Monty, uh, was censured by the Players Committee of the European Tour and handed his prize money back for Jakarta. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Elliot Saltman was banned for, I think, six months? Yeah, I think uh, so. Oh. And my, my former clubmate, uh, David Robertson, back in the day in 1985, was... Oh, he was the worst, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he, he got am. well back. He was actually... Um, Ten years. I saw this. I saw this up in person because it was in the qualifying uh, for the 1985 Open at Prince's. Uh, he was playing directly in front of me, and uh, I can still, to this day, as clear as day, I was standing in the middle of the 14th fairway waiting for them up on the green ahead, and everything stopped, and, and a caddy came running back and went past us, and we got waved up on, onto the green. Uh, so David standing there. Of course, I knew him. We, we came from the same place, basically, um, and we, we were we were actually chatting on the green about, oh, how are you getting? Oh, no, I'm too over or whatever it was, you know, blah blah blah. He never once said, uh, oh, and by the way, my career's about to end here. <laughs> I'll never be heard of again. You know, it was just extraordinary. Apparently, he'd been moving his ball, you know, twenty twenty five feet on the green and picking his marker up and all. It's incredible stuff. The but, uh, uh, yeah. I was actually there and saw it with the great shifter on his back. That was the that was the carry's name. His name was Shifter. He right. was from from Mary Hill 
in Glasgow. Right. Here, um, right. but but my bringing this stuff up, my point is that Dyson, Monty, Saltman were all penalised at the time for the rules infringement, but there were subsequent penalties imposed by the tour or by the players' committee, uh, and this was uh, and and these were accepted. Now, my point is, Reid gets his two-shot penalty, whatever you think of his intent. But, mm-hmm. but, but the, two, uh, the, the point is the European Tour, has, well, not all the time, but they have taken these issues on and dealt with these guys. Now, the PGA Tour shows no intention of dealing with this guy. I mean, and quite the reverse. They're calling him a gentleman. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... Does that well, not strike you as odd? No, it doesn't strike me as odd because this is the pattern of behaviour that's been in place for you know since God was a lad. I mean, the tours basically do not want to hear about cheating. No, no, but but the European tour. I've just given you three no, instances. Well, they, they yeah they've done they've done a better job than the PGA tour, but there's I'm sure you know Mike probably knows that there's plenty of instances that are examples where the tour have turned a blind eye or or just done nothing. You know, I mean, the, the the tours don't want to hear about cheating. It's bad for their image. It's bad for selling the the game to sponsors. I mean, golf is marketed on the basis that these guys are lily white. I mean, they're they don't do any. They're cheating. Oh my goodness, no, not in golf. Never, never. I mean, that's how it's sold to sponsors. So the tours, the last thing the tours want to hear about is cheating, and that's why they don't take it on typically, because you know it would be public. You know, it would be public knowledge that oh my goodness, there's guys out there cheating. You know, and that ruins the whole credibility of the whole thing. But 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 the hypocrisy and double standards involved in that. You oh, take, well, absolutely. But yeah. But you take a guy like Brian Davis. Remember, he called the shot on himself yeah, at Hilton yeah. Head. Nobody yeah, saw there's that. Plenty of instances. Yeah, absolutely. There's great instances of guys doing the opposite. Right. Was it Mike Long Clates that did something similar? Uh, no, yes. but John Morse did, and the Australian PJ took a practice swing and knocked a leaf off a tree mm-hmm. and insisted. Trevor Hurden said, Mike, he said, John, I don't, I don't think that's a penalty. I don't, I don't think that's improved the area of your swing. He said, give me the penalty, Trevor. He lost the tournament by a shot. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, yeah, you know, but, but, Bobby Jones, you might as well praise a man for not robbing a bank. Well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, what Jones would make of Reed would be, well, he, you know, he would take him into the locker room and sit him in the corner, mm-hmm. which is what needs to happen to Patrick Reed. You know, yeah. I mean, Jack Nicholson, Arnold Palmer, son, come over here in the corner. Here's how this is going to work from now on. If you do it again, you're off the tour. Well, yeah. just to, to, to finish my point, so the, you take a guy like Brian Davis and the PG Tour can't wait, cannot wait to talk about stuff like yeah. that. They cannot yeah. wait to talk about stuff like that. Again, I feel I feel like I'm dominating this, but but the other point is Clates, and you might be able to speak to this. Back in you know not so long ago, you know five, ten, the last 15, 20 years, guys like on the European tour, guys like Thomas Bjorn, senior guys Bjorn, Clark, Westwood, these guys just wouldn't let this stuff happen. They policed this stuff. You know, they, they yeah. I mean, it's, you, you, you know, meanwhile, Patrick reads off to the President's Cup this week. You're part of the part of the gang. It's just astonishing. Yeah. Well, I can tell three times last week, Elvis Smiley playing with Mike Weir. Mike Weir's ball was in a position to help Elvis's ball out, but they were chipping. 
Mike Wears ball, a ball was behind the hole where it would have clearly helped Elvis. And he said, Mike, go and mark your ball, please. Now, that doesn't happen on the PGA Tour anymore. Yeah. Saving time. We're saving time. Jimmy Walker. You know, <laughs> if I don't like the guy, I'll leave it there. I'll mark it. But if I like him, I'll leave it there. And the backstopping things are, I mean, that's not why. That's silent collusion. It's, you, you, you can't. Is it cheating or is it just breaking the rule? But there's a 17-year-old kid who said to the, a Masters champion three times, Mike, can you go up there and mark your ball, please? Where each time, if he left the ball there, it was potentially a big advantage to him. Yeah. Yeah, that, so, the, you know, the you know, backstopping uh, thing's extraordinary. I wouldn't do that for my best friend. To hell with him. I mean, I'm trying to beat the guy. I wouldn't even consider doing that to help somebody. It's a joke. Uh, anyway, yeah, I feel as if we're... It's a fast. It's a yeah. fast. Yeah. We, we could talk about this for hours. I feel as if we're disappearing <laughs> in a rabble. hole. The other... Oh, just... Just... <laughs> Out of the, the funniest thing, not the funniest, the most funniest slash most awful thing, Huggy, is uh, the, the sudden reappearance of the Gary Player video. Oh. Royal <laughs> a, a classic. I used to think that uh, Animal House was the greatest movie ever, but I've changed my mind now. Have you have you seen this video, Clayt? How bad was that? I mean, I've seen it before, but when you really, when you really look at it, in the context of Patrick Reed, that was pretty amazing what he did there. The the funniest thing, Clayton, it's, uh, it's the RNA put it up there and it's on YouTube and it's a minute long yeah. and they've, they've filed it under classic moments. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a, a classic moment, a classic Gary Player moment, my goodness. Well, you, I think you should make it clear to the listeners that this is Gary Player in the 1974 opening when he's, he's over the back of the last screen up against the wall of the clubhouse and having to putt left-handed and as a prelude to uh, to hitting the putt he takes an extravagant practice swing that could, that he, he would have done he would have, like a half wedge shot and he, and he moved, I tell you what, he must have moved 20 times more earth than Patrick Reed ever did from behind the ball, it was an extraordinary performance. And then he dusted off the back of his putter. Dusted, yes, you know. and then he cleaned his putter, he took time to clean the putter as well, <laughs> oh it's fantastic. Um, anyway, as I say, it's brilliantly filed on YouTube but it's a classic moment classic <laughs> open moment. Here, Anyway, uh, moving on I feel, I feel we've been on this for hours uh, uh, so Reid is bowling up to the President's Cup this week uh, I noticed all the comments from uh, Leishman was quite restrained, but uh, Cam Smith. <laughs> so I could, why am I laughing? Cam Smith got on about who I love, by the way. Clayton, is he a good guy? I, I mean, I, he's great. Uh, he's great. He's, he's the best. Brilliant. Uh, great. I love the way he they both. Like. They both are Leishman as well. Yeah, yeah um, good. Uh, great swingers of the club as well. Both of them fantastic. Uh, Cam Smith has gone on about quotes. Uh, reads quotes. Uh, bullshit. <laughs> And he hopes that the fans get into him <laughs> at the uh, President's Cup. What are the chances of that, Clayton? The Australian fans uh, being less than polite? That's not going to happen, is it? No, that'll be fine. But they've got the fanatics down here. You know, the, the, oh, you no. Know, those lunatics that get dressed up and go to all the Australian sporting events and sing. So they'll give it to him a little bit, I think. But the, the crowds will be fine. You know, I don't. Not. The, the, the crowds will be fine. I mean. As Huggy said, they should treat him with a very little bit of silence when he gets on the first two. Just don't clap. Yeah, don't that, that, that actually happened back in the 1999 at the Dunhill Cup at St Andrews, a couple of weeks after the the Brook Lane, 
you know, stampede across the green led by Tom Lehman. And Tom Lehman was introduced on the first tee on the old course at St Andrews as part of the American team in the Dunhill Cup. And after he was introduced, there was total silence. Really? Absolutely nothing, yeah. He said afterwards, he says, I thought they were making a point. Well, yes, we, they were making a point. But that's the way to deal with it. Absolute silence. Wow. Um, so you're not expecting much fireworks in, in that. Do you, do you think Reid will get a hard time from the press down there, uh, Clytes? There is no press down here. Oh, that's a... Well, Which is not entirely... Well, that, that's not entirely fair. There are no, there are almost no golf writers left, newspaper golf writers left. Here. So he probably will, because there'll be tabloid writers and blokes who are That's just in for the week. So, so to, yeah, yeah. So, so it's a cheap early week story for those guys. So they'll, I mean, he's, yeah, yeah. Look, I don't know. I suppose it's an early week story, but I mean, Tiger's here. Tiger's a big star. I mean, he'll he'll figure out how to deflect it probably and give him a non-answer and move on. But you know, if, I, I don't know how they work the press conferences down here, but if someone had the guts, they could ask Patrick Reed a pretty curly question if they wanted to. Yeah, just yeah. I, I was just looking at my notes. I forgot to mention it in the context of the of what happened. So Reed finished, uh, I think it was tied third or something, to second, and sixteen under, two shots behind the winner Henry Stenson. The difference in prize money, well, Stenson won a million, and Reed won two hundred fifty thousand, seven hundred fifty thousand. You know, if he hadn't been caught, you know, he would have taken money from somebody. It would be nice if he'd given it to the Bahamas uh, Disaster Fund, but uh, clearly that didn't happen. Uh, so uh, at least we, at least he got caught, uh, because I'm sure as hell he wouldn't have been dogging himself in, as we say. Um, again, it's just something else to think about when you're... Anyway, Clates, uh, Royal Melbourne, how, uh, I was reading up today a piece on Reuters, Fast and Firm. Uh, what's it going to be like? What can we look forward to? Well, it always is, and today's a really hot... Miserable, I was going to say miserable, it's just really hot, so the greens will be baked out. The forecast was for the weather at 6 o'clock to change. The temperature will drop about 20 degrees in half an hour in about 15 minutes from now. Um, and if it rains, it'll, it won't soften it up because the greens are so hard that the rain just bounces off. So it'll be fiery and fast and it'll play short, but it'll be really hard to get the ball close to the hole. So it's, it's always fun to watch golf at Royal Melbourne. So my, my interest is in seeing how the course, how short it really plays now for these guys. We've watched the best amateurs in the world. Matthew Wolf played there this year in the big amateur tournament in January and he was hitting wages into most of the holes. And So that'll be interesting, but it's always a... Yeah, I, the way I look at it, you've got arguably the well, certainly one of the best five courses in the world, and arguably the greatest player ever playing golf there. So how can that be bad? So that's my interest really. And you know, Adam Scott's always great to watch. And um, it's not a, the international team isn't. You wouldn't say it was a great team. I mean, they might until they gel and how they play. But on paper, the American team is miles better. Yeah. It's an 18-hole match play, and you know, these guys yeah. are flying halfway across the world, and they'll be playing on greens that are certainly much firmer than they were last week. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, the, the internationals won easily in 1998, and the, and the Americans won easily last time. So you can't take anything from the form of the 
the past two President's Cups. Yeah, the Americans are much better at 72-hole stroke play events. It remains to be seen there if they're that much better at 18-hole match play. That's the difference. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was going to say, again, these guys are all international players now, or most of the, the international, well, the international team are on the PGA Tour. Uh, so there's no kind of home advantage involved because it's a complete, it's an alien, you know, if you're growing up or if you're playing your college golf at Alabama or wherever, like Justin Thomas, you never, you never seen a place like Royal Melbourne, are you, ever? I, well, I, I think arguably because the Americans have played more at Augusta than the internationals, they've almost got the home ground advantage. There are only three Australians in it. Jason Day's out of it now. So um, you can make an argument the Americans have actually, because the, the closest, you know, as my friend Rand Morris said, right, no, Tom Doker was, he, he said, Royal Melbourne's the course Augusta wants to be. And Rand Morris, who's the head of the top 100 panel, when he comes down to Australia, he talks to Royal Melbourne members who are, can't wait to tell him that they're off to play Augusta. He says, a long way to go for worse golf. <laughs> so, um, um, <laughs> you know, Augusta's the closest course you'll find to Royal Melbourne. Is it really? So, doesn't it, hang on a sec, doesn't it play a, a bit softer? I, I just, well, isn't that play a bit greener? Well, everything plays, everything plays softer at Royal Melbourne. I mean, I played with a friend of mine this year, in, early in the year, and he said, in all seriousness, he said, I haven't fixed a pitch mark on this golf course for seven years. And people who haven't played at Royal Melbourne can't imagine that's possible, but you literally, you don't ever, you don't even look for a pitch mark, let alone repair one. So that's how hard the greens are. So... You know, Royal Melbourne's greens are harder than anywhere else in the world. And, you know, they're just brick hard. So, you know, and I think they go overboard. I'm like, at some point, they get that hard that it, there's not much difference between hitting the ball onto the green and landing on a footpath, really. The, um, I remember back in 2011, I think Huggy admonished me on Twitter, uh, uh, surprisingly. Can you believe that, Clates? Uh, that... I thought the greens were uh, were just ridiculous. No matter where you hit the ball, the the ball just you know ended up in the same spot in the green. It just kind of it was like water r- running off you know a, a kitchen yeah a kitchen top. Yeah, you know, as much as I love the golf course, I, mean, I love playing there. It's, a, it's just I just think there, and it's not true to say there are times when it goes over. But every tournament there is always on the edge of the line or over it, which is why play there is always so atrociously slow you watch the four balls this week they'll be they'll get around six hours no problem at all yeah because from outside 15 feet so hard to run the ball where where you can tap it in you're always marking the ball from 30 feet you're nearly always marking the ball so it's always three feet three or four feet away so it's a good part of the from 30 feet so it's atrociously slow playing golf there because of how they set the greens up. Is that just... So the members... Yeah. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, do, do they do that just out of habit, like Oakmont, or set up their course? Yeah, uh, is it, exactly. Is it habit, or or is it... Uh, well, for certainly when they have professional terms, is it just to try and protect the course, its, it's dignity? No, 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 it's habit, because when they were doing it in 1974, when Trevino sort of... Famously said, you better take a picture of me going at the gate because you won't ever see me coming back in. <laughs> you know, um, they were they were running at 14 in 1974. 
when, when according to the USGA, Oakmont had the fastest greens in America at 9.8. So there was a guy called Paul Crockford who was a legendary greenkeeper at Royal Melbourne forever. But the aforementioned Graham Grant at Kingston Heath was apprenticed to Crockford at Royal Melbourne as a kid. So that was how Crockford set the golf course up, and that was how he thought golf should be. And we grew up playing there when they were unbelievably hard and fast. Well, not always, but certainly for tournaments, they were crazy speeds. So they weren't setting him up that way to protect the scores because this, I mean, one year the cut was 158. Bob Shearer won. Bob Shearer won by seven shots in 1984. Shot one over par. The par was 71 then. Shot 285 with a 65 in the first round and shot one over and won by seven. So they certainly weren't setting the golf course up to stop people shooting low scores. That was just the way Crockford thought Royal Melbourne should play. And I always thought it was, it, it was a, an exaggeration of what Mackenzie would have wanted, I think. But anyway, that's the way it's always been, and that's the way it'll be this week. The um, 7,032 yards is the yardage this week. It's, yeah, which is, you know, Huggy and I were saying, we were talking about this before, what do we think, Huggy, 2,000 yards short of where yeah, it needs to be for those guys? We reckoned it would need to be a 9,000-yard course to resurrect or restore the original uh, principles that uh, Mackenzie was trying to create and the angle, the strategy and all the rest. Of it. To, to recreate it now, would the course would have to be 9,000 yards long. I, I was Actually, that was my next question uh, to, to either of you, you know, given how the guys hit it these days. Is, is all the strategy just taken out of the golf course? Did you just blow all that there at so well, far? Yeah, it's wedged every hole, basically. Yeah. So, so the most strategy is on the really tiny part fours. You've, mm. you've got to hit it in exactly the right spot to get it near the hole with your pitch shot. So uh, I get messed up with the numbers. What's going to be the sixth hole this week and the eleventh hole this week? That'll be interesting to watch. Two tiny part fours, you know, under three hundred yards. The first hole with the green slopes severely from front to back is always interesting to watch. Uh, but yeah, the the strategy when you're hitting drives and middle irons, when you need to be at the, on, the, on the right angle to get anywhere near the hole, is rendered somewhat irrelevant when you're going with a nine iron or a wedge. That's the problem. And the, and the, and the cross bunkers at the, uh, what's going to be this, it's the 17th side that's going to be 18, 17, 16, 18, the 15th hole. I mean, cross bunkers that Greg, could get over and Seve could get over in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, was where most guys laid it up short. Now everyone, they're not even looking at them. You know, beautiful diagonal bunkers that are 60 yards short of the green. They won't even look at those. They're straight over the top. So they're irrelevant. Um, you know, the irony is that it's the short holes, one, one, six, and 11, that are almost the most strategic in that. And they're the shortest holes. In fact, arguably, they're more dangerous because they're reachable. Certainly, the sixth hole is a much more dangerous hole. Now that now it's easily reachable and not just a two-iron and a pitch. But the only time you can hit the green now is when it's the end of the wind. Because downwind, there's no chance of keeping a ball on that green. Um, and over the back's dead. Yeah, you can't so, be... Um... So, 
uh, yeah, it's um, it's a, it sounds like a shame. But again, you know, for somebody like well, you guys are there, but for golf nerds like me, I mean, we just can't wait to see it on TV. It's just going to be. It's always such yeah. a thrill. It's like seeing Kingston Heath on TV. Yeah, these great golf courses. Um, and the two short threes, three and three and five will be great to watch. Two of the young fives are wedge, and threes are eight or nine iron. But you know, you've got to hit the perfect shot to get any of the flags there. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's still interesting to watch. I, I mean, for me, the issue is get the greens as hard as you can and run them at ten, or make them a little softer and run them at 14. But the combination of rock hard and 14 is... And we're making assumptions that, 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 that that's what they're going to be. Is It's a combination of the two that makes it slow and makes it treacherous and kind of sadistic fun. But, you know, you've got to... It's really difficult to hit, hit, hit the ball close to the flag at Long Island. Mm-hmm. You've got to control the spin, the flight, the trajectory, manage the wind... Land in exactly the right spot. Now this is this is not Medina, Justin Thomas, twenty five under par stuff. This is complete opposite of that. Yeah, I think in two thousand eleven they were rock hard and running at fifty. I mean that that was just my memory of that was uh, that was kind of goofy, uh, which is not something you would associate well, with Royal Melbourne, is it? Yeah. Well, I think Jason and Dustin Johnston both putted off the third green on that last day. Which is the only way to keep it on is not putt at the hole, just putt across. And, you know, they were, we were watching those putts thinking, no way you can keep this on the green if he goes at it. And, both just, and, and you don't go off, you just go off the green, you go off the green and 25 yards down the hill. <laughs> Huggy, you're a student of uh, Mackenzie's writings. Uh, did he ever say that? Don't putt at the hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had one like that. Uh, the seventeenth green at Valderrama, which I'm sure Mike's played as well. That played there once, and the pin was on the front right of the green. And just for fun, after we played the whole week, we went to the back left-hand corner of that green. And the only way that you could not have the ball go in the lake if you putted towards the hole was to put it right off the far end of the green and chip it back on. That was the only way you could not have your ball go in the lake. I mean, what a load of nonsense. I, I love a strategic golf course like Valderham. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, what is that ranking? Oh, I did say they... Go on, Clayton. I did say they slipped they slip out of the top 100 in the latest ranking, which was... Well, that's because... Interesting. That because, not before time. Well, that because Ran Morissette's now running the show. I I, I see that there's a few clubs, you know, obscure courses in you know, Vietnam, and they, they were mysteriously on that listing, and now they've now they've gone. Well, uh, we'll see no more about that. The um, yeah, Valderrama, Huggy, that is a real beauty. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> what um, what else can we expect from the? Uh, do you like this tournament, uh, Clayton? Or are you more of a Ryder Cup man, or you don't like team golf, or? I like it. I think it. I think there's a good argument to say, and I think it would be for me personally it'd be way more interesting if it was men and women playing it. And I think the internationals would have a. It would be massive amateur. There are six great women who would make it a formidable team to beat. 
I think it would be more interesting golf. I think it would be quite worth golf. I think it would resurrect the president's car. Now, if they get smashed this time, then I think they're going to have to seriously think about what they're going to do with it. Um, but I would much prefer to see six men and six women playing this song. I think it would be great. That's a, that's a brilliant idea, Huggy, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that because that, that would be a really a really good contest. I mean, the the international women uh, would have an advantage. You would think their top six would be way better than America's top six and vice versa for the men. So um, it would be a pretty good uh, even match. Um, I, well, yeah, the, the colours and the top, and like Thompson are terrific. I mean, they're, they're, to say the Americans, are, you know, they're, ter- they're terrific players. But you put the, you know, Song Hong Park and John Lee Six, uh, Jin Young Ko, Henderson, you put those four in a team and it's a hell of a team. Amby Park, maybe, So Young Yu, So Young Kim, you know, it's a great team. Lydia, maybe. You know, that's a, that's a tough team to beat when you throw them in with Adam Scott and Leishman and, you know, the best, yeah. six yeah. best international players. Anyway, we'll... Um... And, and, and the tour could do worse than give the LPJ a bit of a boost because that's a great tour now. The, and I think the tour owns a big chunk of the LPGA, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it's, it's well within their it's well within their remit to do that. Maybe we'll see that. It's a fantastic idea, Clicks. You should copyright that or you know get a patent out on it, and then when it happens, which it inevitably will, uh, you can get your cut. Well, I think I think I think I'm right in saying that Eamon Lynch wrote a column about it today. I think someone did. But um, you know, we've, we've spoken about that before, and I, I just think it'll be a great event, and it will distinguish it from the Ryder Cup. I mean, it's, it's always going to be the poor man's Ryder Cup, and certainly in the eyes of the Europeans, it's never going to match what the Ryder Cup is. Maybe in a hundred years, it might. You know, I just think there's a probably a better way to do it, and I, and I think it would be a great event. Well, well, the, the, well, we'll probably stop. But my idea is to, I mean, stop playing everybody in every session. That's what they do. That don't they? I mean, it's just takes out. Yeah, well, they they, they out try the, too hard to make it different from the Ryder Cup. That's the problem. But but that that whole thing. But takes, the problem with the Ryder Cup, Huggy. Yeah. The, the problem with the Ryder Cup, Huggy, is that when it was a mismatch, they did all they could to make it a fair yeah, fight. Yeah. So they yeah. went away from two lots of singles. They took four players out every session. You know, yeah. it became a foursomes and four ball event largely, which was seen to be to, to advantage the British team. So everything was done to try and make it somewhat even. And then when it became an even contest, they stuck with the format because well why ruin something that works? But it would be a better event with thirty six holes of singles and you know, perhaps I mean Less foursomes golf, really. I mean, you know, yeah. Well, yeah, you're right from the point of view that the I mean that the last time we had a close Ryder Cup was at Medina in 2012. I mean, that's that's going to be that's a long time ago. The the last few have been, you know, fairly comfortable victories for one team or the other, and and I think the Ryder Cups needs to look at that and be careful because uh, team golf is the most wonderful thing to watch when it's close, but not so much when it's not close. Uh, they, they need to remove the home advantage thing, Huggy, in the Ryder Cup. They need to yeah, they, they need to take the hand and course it up to a neutral a neutral yeah. body. That that would pretty much knock that in the head. Also, uh, I'm glad you raised that, Huggy. 
which you're right. There hasn't been a close Ryder Cup since 2012. What a, no. a, that points to the marketing brilliance of the Ryder Cup people. We, we, we forget that, don't we? We do forget it. I've certainly forgotten yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most fun to watch when it, when it is close. There's nothing like it because, as I've argued many times, I mean, stroke play only becomes interesting when it turns into match play. So, you know, it's like I give you the, the Open Championship at Troon with Henrik and Phil Mickelson. I mean, was there anything any better than that? And that wasn't stroke play, that was match play. Anyway, I think it's only fitting that we end a discussion of the President's Cup talking about the Ryder Cup. I mean, I think that just about says it all. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Clayton, uh, I can't believe we had you on. I, it's been an hour and a half. This, I, I, it feels like about five minutes. Uh, I, I would have a 10-hour podcast. Like everybody else in the world of golf, I'd have you on for 10 hours if it was up to me. But but, but Huggy... Uh, Huggy do that, Lance. Huggy gets uh, annoyed when he doesn't. He's not the star of the show. He gets all. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what, I've I've actually looked at because I'm actually sitting in Mike Clayton's lounge and he's stuck in some other room that I think might be my bedroom later on tonight. So he, I've got the big room and he's in the wee room. That seems about right to me. Anyway, listen, Clayton, it's good to talk to you, pal. Talk to you again soon. Thank you, Lance. Huggy, talk to you soon, pal. Okay, thanks, Lance. See you soon. It's a wide open road. It's a wide open road.